The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 244. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a Time Lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Bravehearty. Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding! Position universe. Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Panelsy! I am Scottish. I can complain about things. She'll be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing The Angels Take Manhattan with the 11th Doctor. Joining me today on the panel are, is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, IR is here. <laughs> I, the, the absence of Father Corey threw me off. I, I, my usual R, uh, plural, it was mistaken. <laughs> Father Corey is uh, taking taking a day off, so we'll on we'll assignment. Have, he's on assignment with the uh, in the TARDIS, but uh, we'll have him back again next week, uh, folks. Well, maybe we, I mean the nav system's knackered, but <laughs> I know. he's off off on an adventure with the Doctor. But you know, he, it's a time machine. He can come back in a, in a minute, uh, folks. Please write up a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. We love when you write reviews, and it helps immensely. You have no idea how much it helps. For you to write reviews there, it, it, it's, it seems like a small thing, but it's a big deal. So we really you appreciate You can it. fight the algorithm. You can manipulate the manipulators. Right. Fight the great intelligence and help us defeat it. <laughs> and uh, also share the podcast with your friends. We really do appreciate it when you do that. And I, I want to take a moment for, for right here just to promote another show on the StarQuest Network. PlayStation Portable is the one of the longest-running podcasts out there, period, not just on StarQuest. It's been around for more than a dozen years, probably close to 14 at this point. It is a daily podcast that provides the Liturgy of the Hours, or the Divine Office, which is the prayer of the, of the Catholic Church, and it's a nice uh, interim every, every few hours a day. You can do as much or as little as you want opportunity to pray, and it's a really nice podcast. Meaning it's an interim that occurs every few hours, not it doesn't take hours a day. Thank you. Thank you <laughs> for, being, for being more accurate. I didn't want to imply that. Yeah, it, it, in fact, each, each set of uh, prayers takes, you know, 10 minutes, probably 15 minutes at most. So it's a really nice way to pray. And I, I pray with my kids uh, with the, the office and they really enjoy it. So it's, it's nice. All uh, right, uh, and also just stick around to the end. We have actually a lot of listener feedback today, so that's going to be really good. Oh, yes. Okay. So, uh, but first, before we talk about Angels Take Manhattan, we have a couple things we need to discuss. Which is, uh, by this time, you, it is. You're, I'm certain that if you're a Doctor Who fan, you've heard that it's official. Both Jodie Whittaker and Chris Chibnall are leaving the series after a bunch of specials in 2022. And there was much rejoicing. <laughs> Especially for the departure of Chris Chibnall, I think. Yeah. 
Although Jodie Whittaker, I'm sorry, she has been frankly unengaging as the doctor. Yeah. In in the two episodes that Dr. Ruth, the fugitive doctor, appeared, she was vastly more engaging than Jodie Whittaker. That's true. Uh, There's been some debate I've seen of of whether it was more the writing or the actress, maybe a little of both. I I think it's both. I think the writing has been substandard, and I think Jodie Whittaker comes across as as likable, but otherwise flat and unengaging. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, when you compare her doctor to all the previous doctors, I mean, you, there's just so much more there, you know, with a Capaldi, with even a Matt Smith or David Tennant, you know, that this even in the just the modern. I didn't like Peter Capaldi's portrayal of the doctor, especially in the beginning. It got better towards the end. Yeah. But he, he was more engaging. Right. He certainly wasn't flat, that's for sure. <laughs> so they're they're leaving. So what they told us is that we're going to get a, a a series or season this autumn, autumn twenty uh, of twenty twenty one, and they said six episodes, but previously we've been told there'd be eight. So I'm wondering whether that means that we're going to get a couple of double length episodes, maybe at the premiere and a special, you know, the the Christmas or New Year's special, something along those lines, um, and then in twenty twenty two. They said they were going to get a number of, um, I forget, forget it was, two specials and then a final quote-unquote feature-length adventure for the 13th Doctor, which I think feature-length means two hours, you know, like yeah. a movie. And these will probably be like the David Tennant specials that saw him off where they're like an hour or so in length. Right. So we, we're getting less this season, this year, which, that, you know. And, less is more in some cases. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I mean, I can't. As much as I have disliked some of Chibnall's stuff, I still want to see Doctor Who. I still like the show, and I wish we had more of it. Mm-hmm. I'm, 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 pull, I'm, you know, torn over it. But I think we, I, I think you've made it clear, and I, I agree. The Chibnall era has not been uh, a banner Stellar. era. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, apparently, the feature-length anniversary, or the feature-length special in 2022, is meant to coincide with some big anniversary of the BBC itself. Yeah. And then the year after that, 2023, will be the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who. So presumably there will be something new then with a new Doctor and maybe multiple Doctors. Interesting. That would be, yeah, because they usually do for those big anniversaries, do something in along those lines with multiple Doctor specials. It would be fun to see Capaldi and uh, on screen with, you know, some of the other doctors, <laughs> you know, the the 12th, the 11th, you know, that might be interesting. The rumor I'd previously heard is that the 60th was going to be Jodie Whittaker and David Tennant. Huh. But this de- departure news for Jodie Whittaker suggests that won't be the case. That's true. That's true. Interesting. Uh, one other bit of, it's not so much news, just interesting anecdote that came across was I, I saw this morning was that J. Michael Straczynski, the creator of Babylon 5, among other series, has popped up, raised his hand, and said, if the BBC would like an American showrunner, I'm game. I'd love to do hey, it. Hey, that, that would be very interesting. Yeah. I need to think about that. That's the first I've heard of that. But I think, he, I think Straczynski is a much better writer than Chris Chibnall, yeah. and he's a showrunner that has definite chops, and, and that, would, uh, that would be interesting. I still need to think about it, but that would be very interesting. It would certainly have pull. It would bring people in. And of course, the, the, the biggest question of all is, is what do we get for a new doctor? And 
one of the names that I saw that that came up that I was intrigued by was, oh gosh, what is his name? He was the guy in Rogue One, and he just did a movie called Sound of Metal. Uh, I didn't see it, but my wife Melanie saw it, and she really liked it. And it's Riz Ahmed, who would be very interesting as a as an actor. I, I'm not sure, but you know, he's one of the names I've heard come up. So I don't know who they, you know, they might come up with for names for doctors. I'm sure over the next year and a half or so, we're going to get tons of rumors and ideas. But there have already been rumors that have been raised and dismissed. And it's it. The fact is, no doctor has been cast yet. They haven't even named a new showrunner. So the showrunner yeah. comes yeah. first, so, and then they'll have a doctor. Yeah, so, a long ways out. There was something else you wanted to talk about, Jim. Yeah. Well, there were a couple things, and they're both related to a character who's also a real person that we met in the David Tennant, Donna Noble episode, The Unicorn and the Wasp, which was focused on the mystery writer Agatha Christie. And I'm not a big fan of the pseudo-historicals they've been doing in New Who, where they bring in a, a guest character like... Charles Dickens or William Shakespeare or Agatha Christie or Rosa Parks, because whenever they do that, the doctor feels the need to build a shrine to this person, mm. and and it gets in the way of the storytelling, all the shrine building. So I wasn't a huge fan of that episode. I'm also not a huge fan of Agatha Christie. Uh, some of her novels, like And Then There Were None, are are like clever, but they're 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 forced. You know, there's a gimmick to, and then there were none, and everything has to bend to fit that gimmick, which right. I won't reveal here because I don't want to spoil it for people. So I'm not a huge fan of Agatha Christie, but I've been trying to give her a chance lately. And so I watched these four movies that are Miss Marple movies, Miss Marple being one of the characters from Agatha Christie. She's kind of a, a predecessor of Jessica Fletcher for Murder, She Wrote. You know, she's an yep. older, she's a mature woman who goes around solving crimes. And so I watched these four movies that they came out with in the 1960s. They're all black and white, and they feature Miss Marple. They are Murder, She Said, Murder at the Gallop, Murder Most Foul, and Murder Ahoy. And they're, they're fun. They're silly. They're, you know, which then they're not believable, which is uh, part of the cozy mystery, you know, cozy murder mystery format. But they were fun, and they star a woman named Margaret Rutherford as Miss Marple. And she, here's the Doctor Who connection, she is the female John Pertwee. <laughs> it is amazing. You just, why, she has some facial resemblance to John Pertwee anyway, but then when you see her face in action, she's pulling all these faces and using her facial muscles and her her thinking expression is like John Pertwee's thinking expression, and she's actually got more than one of them, and they all match John Pertwee. <laughs> and it is it is amazing. This is this this is like the female John Pertwee. Awesome. Another interesting thing about this, these four movies is they contain meta fictional elements. So, like in in one of the later movies, they'll be talking about. Uh, you know, Miss Marple will be talking about, oh, this is just like that thing that happened in that Agatha Christie novel, uh, Murder, She Said. <laughs> and it's like, okay, that's a previous film in the series. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but now it's being treated as if it's a play or a book that's by Agatha Christie. And in one of the films, uh, there's, a ref there's a theater company, and they reference another Agatha Christie property. They say, if we do this right, we'll run longer than The Mousetrap. 
And so <laughs> that got me researching the mousetrap. And because, you know, it was a long-running play, I thought it might be good. So I did research, and I found there's no filmed version of it. Huh. And the reason for that is, now it came out in 1952, and it started to be performed then. The reason there's no filmed version is there was a clause in the contract that said you can't make a movie of this until the theatrical run has been over for at least six months. And the theatrical <laughs> run lasted for 68 years. Oh, wow. It, the only thing that stopped it was the COVID pandemic. And so there has been no movie made of this. And there are some, you know, amateur theatrical productions of it on YouTube, but I didn't like the sound or the acting. So I said, I'm just going to read the play. Yeah. So I started reading the play. And at first I had in my head these generic British voices, most of which need to be upper class accents. And they were generic. And then I thought, no, it'd be more entertaining if I switched to men with, with actual British actors' voices that I know. And so I decided to just have the cast of Doctor Who read the parts for me <laughs> okay. in, in my head. And, and so I developed a list as, I, as the characters were introduced. I developed a list of, okay, who's the best person to play this based on the description and the attitude they're showing? And they don't all physically resemble the characters, but they have the right attitudes. And I could just hear their voices reading these lines. And because the attitude of the character and the attitude of the actor were the same, it just naturally, I could see this person saying this. Okay. So I sent you, Dom, a list of uh -huh. the characters in The Mousetrap, and if you read them for me, I'll tell you which Doctor Who characters I assigned to them and why. Okay. So the first one is voice on the radio. Yeah. So this is just a radio announcer, and all it does is communicate basic plot information to us, like police reports and and so it needs to be a fil an electronically filtered voice because it's on the radio. So, of course, K-9 gets to be <laughs> our exposition machine. Okay. Kind of like a little radio anyway. That's right. So the second one is Molly Ralston. Yeah. So Molly Ralston is a generally mild hotel owner, her and her husband. She's generally mild, but she sometimes shows fragility. So she gets to be played by... Nissa of Trocken. <laughs> okay. And then Giles Ralston. Giles Ralston is her husband. He also is a generally mild hotel owner, but he can sometimes show irritation. So, Peter Davison's the fifth doctor. <laughs> okay. Nice match with Nissa anyway. Yes, yes. Uh, Christopher Wren. Christopher Wren is an eccentric bohemian who speaks rather daintily. And so he's Patrick Troughton's the second doctor. Okay. Uh, Mrs. Boyle? Mrs. Boyle is a demanding former government official. So, of course, of course. Harriet Jones, former prime minister. <laughs> right. Uh, Major Metcalf? Major Metcalf is a competent military man, so the brigadier. Of course, the brigadier. Uh, Miss Casewell? Miss Casewell is a fun-loving tomboy with an unhappy childhood. So, ace. <laughs> of course. Uh, Mr. Paravicini? Paravicini is a mysterious and bizarre Italian who doesn't take the fact they're in a murder investigation at all seriously. In fact, Paravicini seems to love being a suspect. And so there's no one in the regular Doctor Who cast whose voice I know that is natively Italian, but there is one person with the right attitude who would love being a murder suspect and is bizarre 
and could easily put on a fake outrageous Italian accent, and that would be Missy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was thinking the Seventh Doctor, but yeah, Missy, that would be, yeah. Uh, Detective Sergeant Trotter. Detective Sergeant Trotter is an athletic Cockney policeman, and so Mickey. Of course. Awesome. And and this oh go ahead you were going to say something I'm just I was thinking like, it, it if I I haven't read the mousetrap but now I, I want to go find search it out and read it in these different voices yeah it's a it's it's really a a good play it has a um it is famous in fact and no doubt this is one of the reasons for it running for sixty eight years is it's famous for its ending. And it's also famous for they swear the audience, or at least ask the audience, not to reveal the ending outside of the theater, mm. lest they spoil it for other people. Wow! And so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna violate that, even though I wasn't in a theater. I'm gonna consider myself bound by that. I will not reveal the ending of the mousetrap. But I will say, I saw it really early on. Okay. Uh, in the first act, as they're introducing the characters. Very quickly after the relevant character was introduced, I said, this is the person. <laughs> and and I was sorry to be right. I kept hoping as the second act was unfolding, it's like, okay, here's more evidence that fits that. But I was hoping I would be wrong because if I was wrong, then I could write a play with a really awesome ending. <laughs> but no, Agatha Christie got there first. So kudos <laughs> to you, Agatha. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, uh, the, the the swearing them to silence, it reminds me of that Simpsons episode where Homer was having the flashback to 1980, where uh, he's coming out of the theater and people are standing in line to go in to see Empire Strikes Back. And he says, I can't believe Darth Vader was Luke's father. <laughs> All, right. All right. Awesome. The, so a couple of uh, interesting diversions from our main topic, but uh, we, the, I, th- I hope you all enjoy that. Go check out Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap and then see if you agree. But let's talk about this episode that we're, we're the, mm-hmm. of Doctor Who that we've got on tap here. The Angels Take Manhattan, or as I said last time, the Muppets Take Manhattan. It's got to be, that's got to be an homage, Got to right? be. Yeah, yeah. got to be. It, it has to be. So this is a significant sort of tentpole episode because it is the departure of the major companions of, of, a, of, of a, uh, a doctor, the first companions for a particular doctor leaving the show. Let's uh, actually name that doctor. It's the eleventh, Matt yeah. Smith. <laughs> right, right. Sorry, and uh, and so yeah, Amy and Rory. This is their departure, which had been hinted at and oh, talked man. about. We knew it was coming. Yeah, with giant, huge, ginormous hints and misdirections, like oh, oh, they're leaving in this one. No, no, they're not leaving in this one yet. So yeah, it was it. You know, everyone knew it was coming, um, but how was it going to happen? And even in this episode, they kind of. Uh, they fake us out. Fake us out a couple times, but uh, but so let's let's get the recap, and then we'll talk about what happens in this episode. The Doctor, Amy, and Rory are visiting New York City in the present day, and the Doctor is reading a detective novel about a detective named Melanie Malone who lived in 1938. Then Rory is touched by an angel and zapped <laughs> back to 1938. He appears in the novel, and the Doctor and Amy realize it's actually nonfiction and is describing what will happen to them in 1938. Meanwhile, in 1938, Rory meets River Song, who is pretending to be the detective Melanie Malone. She's taken to meet a crime boss who's been collecting art objects, including statues that are actually weeping angels. When the Doctor and Amy arrive, 
they discover that the angels have been running a hotel on the model of a factory farm, or a battery farm, as they call it in the show, which is where they keep people locked in rooms and then zap them back in time to keep feeding off the time energy they release. They've done this to Rory, and the gang sees an older version of Rory die in front of them. So, once again, the man who keeps dying. The only way out is for young Rory to somehow evade the angels and so create a paradox that will cause the timeline to collapse so that the factory farm hotel never existed. To do this, Amy and Rory jump off the building together, committing suicide. Time resets, and everybody wakes up in a cemetery that they visited earlier in the episode in the present day. However, before they can leave, a lone survivor angel taps Rory and sends him back to 1938 again. Amy is determined to let the angel touch her also so that she can be with him, even though it means that she will never see the doctor again because she will be creating a fixed point in time that the doctor can't enter. The doctor begs her not to go, but she does. Afterwards, River discusses how the Melanie Malone novel will be written and published in the past and indicates that she will have Amy write an afterword to the doctor. The doctor then runs to find the last page of the novel, which he had previously torn out because he doesn't like endings, and discovers that the afterword says Amy and Rory have lived uh, long and well and that they love the doctor. So it was a it was a big departure, right? This is a permanent departure. This is not like uh, other companion departures where they just kind of go back to their lives. This is a they're gone forever and never coming back departure. And And apparently that was in part... The decision of Karen Gilliam. She said, unlike other Doctor Who companions like like Rose, she didn't want to just keep coming back. Right. She wanted a clean break, and so they wrote it that way. Okay. So when I, as I was rewatching this and trying taking notes, I I got the feeling, I get the sense there's less here than mm-hmm. I remember. This, hmm. I mean, it's. It's a full episode, and lots goes on, but there wasn't as much for... I just didn't feel like there was as much to note, because partly I knew where it was going, so Mm -hmm. I'd seen it before, and it was just a matter of waiting to get there. I felt like a lot of the interim stuff wasn't so much plot as it was just cleverness, clever writing, Mm -hmm. um, which is a sort of Moffat thing. Yeah, and I, I think I think there's an element of truth to that. Uh, it is pretty straightforward once you understand the shape of it. But I think there are nice things that they mm-hmm. do on the way there. For example, one of the things the doctor says about how changing the past and future work is that if you know your own future, it becomes set in stone. You cannot change it. It creates a fixed point. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know that that actually works on the show, but that's the rule for this episode. But given that rule, there is some some clever stuff they do with that because they've got this Melanie Malone book. And by the way, there are actually in the real world uh, Melanie Malone books now, uh, oh. Doctor Who tie-in books. Uh, one of them is uh, called The Angel's Kiss, and it's a prequel to this episode. They released it at the same time as this episode. Hmm. So if you want to find out what happens leading into this story, you can get The Angel's Kiss. More recently, this year, 2021, Alex Kingston herself has written a Melanie Malone River Song book called The Ruby's Curse. 
And she oh. also reads the audiobook version of it. So you can get that and hear Alec Kingston reading her oh, own fun. River Song Melanie Malone novel. Cool. But they've got this book, and the doctor insists that they don't read ahead because it will lock in anything that they do read because then they'll know what's going to happen. And Amy, early on, makes the mistake of reading a little bit where the doctor has, has, has broken something. He doesn't know what. But we get a line of dialogue about, well, I had to break it because Amy read it in a book. And that's the only thing we know about what's going to happen. We don't know what he's going to break. Mm -hmm. But then we get this scene where River has been taken to the gangster's, gangster's yeah. house. It's like yeah. a big New York mansion. And he's got a weeping angel there that he's been torturing and is in chains. And it grabs River by the wrist. And when the doctor shows up, she's still got her wrist held by the angel. And she says, okay, sweetie, you know, whose wrist are you going to break? The angels are mine. And she looks at him and says, oh, no, not mine. Why? And the doctor says, well, I have to because Amy read it in a book. <laughs> and so this is apparently the thing that's going to be broken. And she is talking with him about that. And, and they're trying to figure out the situation is also urgent because Rory has vanished and they don't know where he is. And so Amy wants to read more in the book, and they're trying to figure out a way to do that. And they propose, well, maybe we can read something that will give us a little hint, but nothing too concrete, like chapter titles. And it's like, yes, finally, for once, a book that has chapter titles. I hate those <laughs> books that have no chapter titles. Right. It's inexcusable in nonfiction, and it's even better in fiction to have chapter titles. So they look at the contents page. And there's a chapter called The Roman in the Basement. And they figure, okay, Rory the Roman, he's in the basement. And so Amy goes off to find it. But before the doctor can join her, leaving River, telling her, get out of this yourself, he notices the final two chapter titles, or at least the final one. The penultimate chapter title is Death at the Winter Key, which is mm -hmm. a hotel. That's the factory farm hotel. Someone's going to die at the Winter Key Hotel. And it's old Rory. Yep. Um, and but then the final chapter title is Amelia's final farewell, and the doctor freaks out, and right. because now he knows he's going to lose Amy somehow, and that's when he tells River just get out of this yourself, and he storms off to find her. And then the next time we see River, she seems fine, and she's talking to the doctor, and it's like, how did you get out of that angel's grip? And she said, well, you told me to change the future. I did. Do you have a problem? And he's like, oh, wow, she is so good. She is so impressive. And then he starts to lead her outside and grabs her by the hand, and she winces in pain. And he discovers she did break her own wrist to get out of that angel's grip yeah. and was hiding it from him. Mm -hmm. And, and that, was, that was an amazing moment yeah. to realize what she had done and what she had sacrificed for this man. And... That was really an amazing moment that fell out of this plot. So I would say that's that's quite clever writing, mm -hmm. but I also found it moving. Yeah, there were, and that's the thing. There were a lot of moving moments in this. I mean, the the, the departure of Amy and Roy was very moving. In just the 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 moments when they were on the roof trying to uh, of, of the winter key, you know, deciding. So there was there were lots of good things. There were a couple of things that, I've, and and I really like the film noir genre mm -hmm. that they they do here. The voiceover of the 
a hard-boiled private detective Garner at the very beginning mm-hmm. in a very Dashiell Hammett style. Um, I, I I keep thinking that that's got to be a reference to to James Garner, James Garner. as as um, um, Rockford Files. Rockford Files, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. If you're if you're Moffat is the same age <laughs> about for us, so he he would remember that too. Uh, one of the things though is it's a problem in all in many TV series, which is you have a really great bad guy. And you keep expanding it until it no longer is at, because you have to keep upping the stakes. And then it kind of waters it down. I mean, it was like the movie Aliens. So in the first mm-hmm. movie, there was one alien. It was really scary. And by the end, they've got, the aliens aren't scary anymore because there's just so many of them and you've seen them so often that they've lost their impact. And it's kind of like that with the Weeping Angels here where you've got, you know, the regular Weeping Angels and you've got the baby angels and you've got. The Statue of Liberty Angel. It's okay, like... so let's partition these because <laughs> okay. I thought the baby weeping angel. So they're down in the dark in the they're they're in art they're called pooty. Yeah, um, you know that's uh, the Italian word for them. They're the little cute cherub angels you see in artwork. Right. Only these are statues, and they've got them down in the basement in the dark, and they throw Rory down in the basement with a box of matches, and he's got to try to keep alive, and he hears the baby angels pitter-pattering around him and giggling in the dark. And I thought yeah. that was an effective scene. I didn't mind the baby angels. Yeah. The the Statue of Liberty, though, is over-the-top stupid. Yes. Because it, angel, and in fact, they break one of the other rules, and I can kind of let them slide on this, but anything that locks, that views an angel, quantum locks it, so it can't right. move. And that's the solution to the original Don't Blink story. With the angels viewing each other, they can't move. Yes. And and in this one, they just ignore that. You have angels behind angels looking at angels, and and they're not looking at each other eyeball to eyeball, but they're still looking at each other, and they right. shouldn't be able to move in that situation. There's a kind of dynamic to the original angel rule that would make them lone hunters rather than pack hunters. Right. And so they've ignored that for this episode, but, uh, and I can maybe kind of let them slide on that with the normal angels, but there is just no way the Statue of Liberty, if it's an angel, is getting off its plinth it, right. in, and walking across New York, walking across Manhattan. That's never happening. Right. It's, so, people are going to look out the window at the, at the noise and see and fr- lock it. Yeah, and so that was that was just over the top stupid. They could they yeah. they shouldn't have done that. Now I should mention there are fan theories to explain it, <laughs> but I don't care. <laughs> right, right. If because you've got to have a, a fan theory to explain it, it's it's a problem. Yeah, um, yeah. This- also, they're they're ignoring one of the other uh, angel rules they established in the Crash of the Byzantium, which is anything that bears the image of an angel becomes an angel. So. Imagine all those postcards of the Statue of Liberty and all those tourist photos. <laughs> right, right. Although in 1938, not as many tourist photos, but yeah, still. Lots of postcards. Lots of postcards. The uh, building, the Winter Key Apartments, the Battery Farm is located in Battery Park. <laughs> yeah. Just, I thought that was a, a, a little clever thing. Uh, but also, little... we should mention, because I don't, maybe battery farm is a more common phrase in England than it is here. Uh, here, we would call it a factory farm. Yeah. But uh, they're called battery farms because the cages are packed closely together in rows like an artillery battery. Yes. 
Yeah. I mean, kind of think of it like the Matrix, where they've got the humans all plugged into the Matrix to power it. I mean, in in in, in that sort of that's another idea with the, the yeah with the, what they're doing. And and to give Moffat credit, I think that the the battery farm or the factory farm is a nice extension of the Weeping mm-hmm. Angels concept. So that's yes. good. Yes, that that yeah, that I don't I didn't have have a problem with that, uh, but yet. Um, the idea that well, the other like thing was that the when Rory gets zapped back from 2013 back to 1938, he's walking through Central Park in that that really famous Fountain Square. I I, mm-hmm. I don't know what the name of it is, but I'm sure people have seen it in movies. And there's people everywhere. And so, how does that baby get from the fountain? You know, the the, the Weeping Angel baby get from that fountain to where Rory is in order to zap him back? It's that sort of thing. It's like it just pulls me out of the story when they mm-hmm. violate that the, the the very basic rules and that that was the thing that got me hmm. um they, yeah. so in, with some of them i can imagine like okay there was a moment cuz the angels move really fast when no one's looking so that's true. maybe there was a moment every, none of the passers by were looking in that direction and it could dart across yeah i mean as soon as everyone looks away it's mobile and it's highly mobile right right that's true there were by the way speaking of famous new york landmarks they we see the uh, chrysler building lots in the background in this episode mm-hmm. that's the famous art deco kind of building that has the scalloped um top yeah and and i looked it up and it's actually not quite in the part of manhattan where this takes place but yeah who cares <laughs> yeah that's fine <laughs> um then we do find out when when they when a- amy and the doctor need to go back to 1938 to go get rory they get this whole thing about the TARDIS can't land in New York City in 1938 because too many time distortions, which is the, a relic of the angels at work in 1938. So that 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 mm-hmm. is the reason for that. River has a line where she says, you know, never let him see you age. He hates endings. We have this prefigurement of endings and endings and endings throughout. So that, that yeah. comes up a lot. The including mobster, rivers. Yes, including rivers. Yeah. Uh, the mobster gets a little bit of poetic justice in in his his end. Uh, the 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 statue of uh, the the widow and the orphan that stands outside his house is mm-hmm. like this statue, which are apparently weeping angels, but have taken the form of whatever the local statuary is. Because New York is full of statues, and apparently they have all become angels. Uh, they come and get him because he's been torturing this angel for in his house for some reason. I'm not sure why. And apparently he's got these... He, well, he says, I mean, they explain that. He says he wanted to know if they can feel pain. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. And he's got those baby angels in the basement for reasons, I guess, to throw his enemies in there at them or something. Yeah. Um, um, I, 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 had, I had a logical question about how did the angels buy this building mm-hmm. uh, that they're using, but... That they doesn't bear s- thinking about. <laughs> yeah, they kind of said they built it, but it would. I don't buy that either. Uh, humans built this, and then the angels just took it over and moved in and yeah. touched anybody that got in their way. Right, right. Um, so Rory, Rory has a heroic, another heroic moment where his his idea oh, is. By, by the way, speaking of Rory, if you ever find yourself trapped in a basement and yeah. you've got these baby angels there and you've got a box of matches. Don't keep lighting the matches one after the other. Find something and make an impromptu torch. <laughs> right. Make if a fire. Is, <laughs> yeah. If there is if there is nothing else, take your fancy dress jacket off and put it on the floor and set it on fire. <laughs> right, right. If you've got weeping angels or anything else hunting you in the dark, yes. Make a make a torch. 
Yeah, so Rory is is gets his chance to be heroic again. He's to stop the angels, and he's he wants to take the risk of dying to come back to life. And and he makes I I, I love the line here because um yeah. because he's planning to jump and he wants to, but he needs Amy's help because he can't quite bring himself to do it. So he's talking her into doing this, and she's like, "What? And you'll just come back to life?" And he says, "When don't I?" <laughs> right. <laughs> he's done it before. And he wants her to push him off the building. I mean, come on! Can you imagine, like, asking you know the, the, your spouse to push you off the the edge of the building? Like, what a what a choice! And so she says, "Well, if if you're going, I'm going with you." And she climbs up next to him, uh, which is pretty you know pr- mm-hmm. pretty hardcore. Given everything they've seen, though. Well, and she's like, "Put your money where your mouth is. Either we're coming back to life or we're not." Right, and and she says, "You know, I don't want." If if you don't come back, I don't want to live without you. So this, I mean, it's a it's a dramatic moment and, and, and very a morally dicey one. However, yes. moving it is right, right. I was going to say, yeah, suicide is never. It, it's a, well, it's going to depend on. I mean, if if this is branching timelines where time can actually be rewritten, so your consciousness lives through this, could be understood as that that's not really suicide. Okay. It's it's you're resetting a timeline, and but you if you know you're going to live through it, and your consciousness will survive in a reset version of your body, you can argue I'm not really committing suicide here. This is not the same moral act. At least you can mm-hmm. argue that. But if you mount that argument, it's going to depend on how confident are you that this is what's going to happen. Right. Are you taking an acceptable risk or not? Right, right. Uh, but so as you mentioned before in the recap, that it it works, of course. Uh, and we think, oh, yes, because so, at first you think this is the end. This is one of those misdirections or this is how it ends for them. But nope, when they get back to 2013 and or 2012, whatever it was. And 12. yeah, and uh, they're in the cemetery where they had gone before. And the doctor had sort of like well, the TARDIS had landed there before. and They didn't know why, but hey, you know, it must be something important. And there's Rory sees his headstone there. Yeah, although I like his initial reaction. It's, hey, this is interesting. Someone with the same name as me. <laughs> yes. Which is actually a possibility. This is one of the yeah. things about this. If you know your future, you're creating a fixed point rule is, hey, the doctor didn't break River's wrist. River broke River's wrist. Mm-hmm. So you may know this could just be a tombstone of someone named Rory Williams, but not the same Rory. Right, right. It's it's not that unusual of a name that it, it could be impossible. Uh, but where did the angel come from? That's so. Was this oh, a survivor? They, they, yes, they explained that. The doctor said it's a lone survivor and it's very weak. Okay, so, so it apparently escaped the paradox collapse. Okay, and so it's there. The doctor and uh, River are staring at it, so it can't move. But Amy is sort of backing up to it because she doesn't want to live in the present without Rory, and they can't take the TARDIS back. And so she refuses to leave him and sort of backs into the angel's well, touch. Yeah, well, she's actually facing the angel during much of it, and yeah. she reaches behind her, and the doctor is begging her not to go. Yeah. And this is, this is actually, I think this is, in, this is really subtle emotionally mm-hmm. that we, I mean, it, or it's interesting, it, interestingly complex, because all through the since the very introduction of of um uh, of Amy Pond we've had this tension between her and the doctor and Rory mm-hmm. and at first it was played as if it's a romantic triangle but they quickly resolved that 
Yeah. But then they would still hint. It's like, where are her real loyalties? Is she, is she, if, if push came to shove, would she choose the doctor or Rory? And this is like the final test of that. I mean, it's been tested multiple times and she's always chosen Rory, but this is, this is the big one where she either loses Rory forever or she says no to the doctor who is begging her to stay with him because he can't bear the thought of traveling without her. Right. And, and to have the doctor begging her to do the wrong thing right. is, is significant. Yeah. And meanwhile, River, who's also standing behind her, is going, Mother, you know, do what you must. And right. Amy reaches back with her left hand to take River's hand for a moment of human contact before she does it. And then she turns her back on the angel and looks the doctor in the face and says, Raggedy man, goodbye. And that's it. She's gone. Right. Right. And this is when um, Amy, uh, River, sorry, all the names mm -hmm. <laughs> muddled in my head, they, uh, they go back to, they're in the TARDIS, and he invites River to travel with him. She says, don't travel mm -hmm. alone. And he says, then travel with me. And she says, you know, I'll travel you wherever and whenever, but one psychopath in the TARDIS is enough, don't you think? Which yeah. is probably says, true. Not all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, there's a nice moment here where that starts that conversation where the doctor is sitting on kind of the steps in the TARDIS control room, and he's grieving, and he looks up at River and says... I'm sorry, it was your parents. I didn't even think. He right. had been, he because she's just lost her parents, and and he was only thinking of himself. Right. That is a nice human moment for the Doctor, who, who in modern times can so often be so self-absorbed. It's a nice moment for him to not be as self-absorbed as he can be. Yeah. Um, and she says it doesn't matter, and he's, you know, of course it matters. Uh but that's when she tells him about the afterword that she's going to have Amy write. And although in the book it's spelled afterword, a W A R D. I don't know if you noticed oh, that. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a typo then. <laughs> it's W. It's an af. It's a word, W O R D, a word that comes after. So it's an afterword, not an afterward. Yes. Uh, and so the, the last page that he tore out is still in the picnic camper in Central Park where he left it. Uh, and so they go. Even though he tore it out from the middle of the book. <laughs> yes, I noticed that too. Uh, he runs to go get it, and this is where she tells him, "Don't travel alone." Um, and then go see young Amelia. Don't leave her sitting there waiting for him. Which is an interesting retcon. She, yeah, I mean, because I mean, her being left there was an important element in everything that comes after. So how would that change her future? Well, so interestingly, now she gives him a specific message to give her younger self. She says, tell her if she's patient that this is going to happen. That, mm. um, And she names a bunch of incidents, like saving the space whale from the beast below and things like that. Mm -hmm. She names a bunch of incidents, including this is how the story of Amelia Pond ends. So if the doctor did all that yeah. for, for young Amelia, but what would be accomplished by this is taking some of the emotional edge off of the journey for Amelia because mm -hmm. she would know the Raggedy Man will come back. I'm not crazy, and, this, uh, and I will have these amazing adventures that right. I can look forward to. And they already did kind of change some of that, too, anyway, right? When he... When he did the thing where he showed up at a wedding. Well, when they rebooted the universe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She got parents all of a sudden. Right, right. So he did fix a lot of that where she lived you know, with a crack and no parents and all that sort of stuff. So mm -hmm. that that's true. That's true, too. 
Um, anyway, but this is this is science fairy tale. Yeah, of course. Now there is a a deleted scene that was never shot, but was released as a webisode with uh, voiceover and animatics. Like you know the 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 the, the stuff yeah. they draw to. to... There, there, there's actually two things like this we need to talk about. Uh, okay. The first one now this it's not a deleted scene technically. It's a um, it's a scene that was written by Chris Chibnall as a DVD bonus feature for right. the previous episode okay. for um, The Power of Three, because uh, Rory's father, and Chris Chibnall was the author of The Power of Three. So the so Rory's father featured prominently in The Power of Three. He's there at the end when they're going off to have adventures with the Doctor. And so Chris Chibnall, as a DVD bonus feature, wrote a scene where Rory's ad- and and Amy's adopted son, who is older than Rory's father now, comes to visit him and reveals to him what happened to Amy and Rory. Right. And so for him, they've only been gone a week, but this is this is Brian, Rory's father, getting the news he'll never see them again. Right. But now he has this grandson who's older than him. <laughs> and yeah. and they embrace. And this scene is called PS. And the reason they didn't end up filming it is because the actor who plays Brian Williams was not available. Right. But Arthur Darville, who plays Rory, was available. So he reads the letter to Brian in this animated uh, short. And it's on YouTube. We can put a link to it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was very effective. It was very uh, you know, moving. Yeah. yeah. It was It was well done. The second one we need to talk about is much more recent. It was it's called Rory's Story, and oh, it was yeah. it was done as part of Doctor Who Lockdown, which was uh, a thing that the Doctor Who folks started doing during the COVID lockdowns in 2020. And Rory's Story was written by Neil Gaiman, yep, famous British author of comic books, novels, and a couple of Doctor Who episodes. One of which is really good. And the premise is Rory. It's back in 1946. It's the year that they adopt their son, and he's about to be brought home from the hospital or orphanage or wherever, and they're getting his room ready for him. And Rory has the only working smartphone in the world, yeah. and he's, he's been narrating the, the, in, video, in vlog format the story of his adventures with Amy. And so he's narrating this and talking to their son that they're about to adopt uh, for future reference. And then the last thing we hear is Amy's voice offset telling him to stop narrating and come in and help her paint the baby's bedroom. <laughs> right. But it's very, it's, it's another, it's really sweet. It's really touching. It's well, it's only a couple minutes long. It's well worth watching. And this would be one of the things that, uh, that their son brought to Brian in the PS because right. Rory says in that he can fill you in on everything. He'll have all the family albums and stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. It is a I mean, that was that would be an impressive husbanding of uh, power on that <laughs> that smartphone. Uh, I mean, I suppose you'd turn off the cell t- t- thing because it'd be, it would do no good. Um, but, I, uh, I would assume they found some way to recharge it. Yeah, because that's eight years uh, from 1938 to 1946. But the, it, yeah, the battery would not natively last that long. There were no big finish things about Amy and Rory in the 40s, is there? Uh, not at this point. Um, there, they may start, and I think the impediment is, is Karen Gillian, because I don't think she, I mean, she's been having this big Hollywood career with Marvel movies and stuff. Um, Arthur Darville has started to record big finish material, but not with 
not with Amy. Instead, he's been doing Lone Centurion box sets. Right, 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 right. That that's that'd be interesting. Um. All right. So yeah. So that is the end of the Amy and Rory era on Doctor Who. Coming up after this is going to be this the Christmas, the Snowman Christmas special, where we'll see um, not Clara but the actress and you know, Jenna Coleman, and then the the Clara era will begin. So that will yeah. be interesting from there. So we'll we'll be heading on toward that. So uh, anything left to say about this episode before we get to the feedback? Uh, to show us the, what's at stake in this episode with the battery farm, they have that hard-boiled detective Garner you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And on it, he, interestingly, he doesn't have a first name on, even on his driver's license, it just says S. So yes. S dot Garner. Right. And I get, I was thinking the S may be an allusion to Sam Spade because mm-hmm. he's clearly modeled off the Sam Spade type detective. Yeah. Even though Sam Spade was in San Francisco, not New York. But um, when he meets his older self, if you listen carefully, the older self has a different accent. <laughs> the the young Garner has a kind of Brooklynese accent that's actually, it's pretty good. Yep. But the older self does not sound like he comes from Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> if he's been in that hotel too long. <laughs> um, all right. So let's uh, let's get to the feedback. We have a, a few things to, to, to uh, relate from listeners. Uh, Ted Coville on Facebook was commenting on our recent discussion of the Sixth Doctor story, Mind Warp, and he said, uh, I really enjoyed this serial. It was a lot of fun, and it was great seeing Syl again. Oh, that's one of us. <laughs> I really thought that Kiv was a Dr. Seuss character. I can't remember from which book. Hmm. <laughs> that's interesting. It's been, been a while since I've read Dr. Seuss, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yes. Uh, Steve, on Facebook, on our discussion of Dinosaurs on a Spaceship, said to, Sorry, but as a family, we really enjoyed this episode. A lot uh-huh. of new who is a bit scary and complicated for younger children. This was one I could watch with my then seven-year-old and nine-year-old, and we all thought it was fun and well-paced. I'm not a big film watcher and had no idea it was a play on the name Snakes on a Plane until you mentioned it. I've not seen that film, and knowing that doesn't spoil it for me. It's silly fun, but sometimes that's okay. Yeah, well, glad you enjoyed it. De gustibus non est disputandum. <laughs> that's right. And as I said to to Steve on Facebook, you know, the, that's the great thing about Doctor Who, which, which has nearly 60 years worth of history and stories. Mm-hmm. There's something for everybody. And if something is not to one person's taste, there'll be something for somebody else's taste. And that's one of the reasons we love Doctor Who. Uh, and, and the, as long as we agree that the God Complex is the worst episode ever. <laughs> well, there's some things we should all agree on. <laughs> And then the last was a, a question we got on Twitter, and I, I'm sorry, I didn't save the, the original, so I, don't, I forget who asked it, but someone asked, how do I get started in Doctor Who? And oh, yeah. We I both remember. had different answers, but I think I liked your answer better. So, Jimmy, what was, what was you had a, yeah, a, an interesting I, answer. I, I recommend anybody who wants to get into Doctor Who start by watching it at its best. It's with it the the and and that'll give you a sense of what the show can do. And it's like you know when they begin a season, they want the first episode to be good so people will tune in later. And so mm-hmm. I think the same principle applies. I recommend that people start with four stories. The first one is Don't Blink, which introduces the Weeping Angels, and it's actually a Doctor Light story, but it gives you a sense of the show, and it's really good. Yeah. Uh, the second one I recommend is the two-parter, Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead, which introduces mm-hmm. River Song. The third is Midnight, 
which is a companion light episode. It's the one where the doctor is on the tour bus on the planet with the weird monster outside that we never see. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth one is the is the eleventh Doctor Christmas special, A Christmas Carol. Right. And for people who have ne- who are not sci fi fans or who have not seen Doctor Who before. These are four really great stories, and they'll give you a, a, an example of what the show can really do. And hopefully, if you like these, you can then start branching out. They'll help you learn the rules of the universe and how the show works. And then with that as background, you can branch out and appreciate other stories. Right. And then from there, you could start either watching New Who or Old Who. Uh, yeah, I would pl- suggest modern people start with New Who yeah. and then go back once you understand and appreciate it. Because there's kind of a learning curve for 1970s and 60s, 70s, and 80s television. It's not as fast-paced as modern TV. And so you you want a deep appreciation to in order to face that learning curve. If you do start with New Who after that, watch the Ninth Doctor season. Make sure you stick with it <laughs> until about well, halfway through. I, I, would, I would even go further than that. I'd say you could easily start with the David Tennant stuff. Yeah, the tenth Doctor, and then go back and kind yeah. of work your way backwards. To I would say start with David Tennant and Matt Smith, and then work your way to to the ninth, and then you can watch other New Who if you want, and you can go back to classic. Out after you've seen the Tennant and Smith eras, you'll have a broad basis that'll let you jump in anywhere. That's true. That's true. Yeah, I would agree. It was hard for me to get through that first season of the ninth Doctor when I started. Yeah, I I didn't have that experience. I th- I I even though I have criticisms of that era, like I do every era, yeah. I didn't find it a struggle to get through the Ninth Doctor, which is just I, one season. Right, and it, part of that is because I'd never seen Doctor Who before, and so that was my only yeah. exposure to it. So that I think that's a, a big difference. Um, all right, well, thank you everyone for your your feedback, your questions. We love to get your feedback. We do want to take a moment now to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including. Jim B, Andrew W, Georgia Ann Z, Andy F, and Andrew P. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What did you think of The Angels Take Manhattan? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the fourth Doctor story, The Sunmakers. Until then, Jimmy Yakin, thank you for joining me in sharing The Secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, changing the future, it's called marriage. Right. This is going to be fun.